0: Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists, working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective, and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome back, I'm Matt Arts with anthro to ux I'm here today with Laura Musgrave. Laura is a senior user uh, experience researcher. She does all kinds of UX research, but also specializes in AI, data, and privacy. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. She has studied, taken many different courses, which we'll get into, but had done some studies at the University of Amsterdam in the social sciences uh, with a focus on cyborg anthropology, a little bit there and beyond. So uh, Laura, thanks for joining me today, looking forward to chatting. So would you mind by... as I ask everybody, would you mind maybe to tell me your origin story and, you know, let's hear how you came into anthropology and, and then we'll get to how you got to UX?
1: Sure. Thanks very much for having me as well, by the way. It's great to be talking with you. Um, so I suppose for me, the the sort of uh, first introduction to anthropology was way back in sort of high school. Um, we had uh, a class that was a mixture of social sciences and history Um, And that's where I sort of first, you know, came across, um, you know, anthropology and certain concepts that uh, are used a lot in anthropology. And I think that had a very sort of early influence on me in terms of my worldview and, you know, sort of what my approach would later be in my work. And I suppose from there, my journey has been... um, a, a, a little bit uh, unusual, I guess. Well, maybe not that unusual, because I, I've heard other guests talking about how it's not necessarily sort of a straight A to B type thing. When we're sort of talking about our careers, we try and simplify it, don't we? But it it's not always that straightforward. So um, a- after that, I sort of, um, you know, went on to study psychology for a couple of years. Um, in the UK, we have a qualification um, known as an A level, which is around, I think it's similar to sort of AP classes or AP tests in the States. Um, And then I felt that psychology, although it was very interesting to me, it didn't grab me in the same way that the anthropology side had before. Um, And I was sort of much more interested in that type of ethnographic approach. Um, And from there, I was a little bit torn between that and the other real love of my life, which was music. Um, And I ultimately ended up going on to uh, university to, uh, I did a Bachelor of Science in Music Composition and Technology. So that was really where the technology part first sort of uh, majorly came in for me. Um, Off the back of that, uh, you know, it it sort of was a little bit of a melding of the two because uh, I you know, became very interested in working with other people um, in terms of music. So going out into local communities, working with different groups, um, and uh, moved on to public engagement and community engagement roles in lots of different settings, lots of different scenarios. So there was always that kind of interest in interacting with with people, you know, that focus on connecting with with people. Um, And I was doing that for many years in one form or another. And that was really where I'd sort of developed some of those skills that I think are really useful in like qualitative field work, in ethnography, where you get very used to going into a situation that is very, uh, you know, new to you, not knowing anyone and having to very quickly work out, you know, how, how, do, how does this work in terms of, you know, what are the relationships here between people? Um, And how do I build up a relationship, you know, with with people here um, and understand, you know, what's important to them? So that was sort of uh, a good, really good grounding for me, I think, in terms of the the UX side. Um, I then moved into the museum field. (laughs) <laughs> um, where I was doing community engagement initially. And that very quickly sort of blurred into also incorporating user research and uh, participatory design um, for uh, mu- the, like museum. Uh, uh, I worked on a museum redesign project, but also exhibition design, things like that. So that was more the uh, non-digital user research Um And was taking lots of different courses because it was really this point that I started to become aware, I guess, of um, anthropologists that were working in user research. And becoming very interested because I could link some of these concepts and things that they were talking about with some of those very early things that I picked up from my high school classes on social sciences. And immediately, you know, I started to make all these connections. So I was like, oh, this is really going to be very valuable to me. So that's when I moved on to study social science research methods with the University of Amsterdam, as you mentioned. Um, And I started taking lots of different courses, some some of them, you know, short courses in anthropology itself, some in like applied ethnography, uh, others that sort of, you know, related, so like commercial semiotics, things like that. Um, And, you know, continued along the user research path ultimately kind of realizing okay well i want to now be in ux research i want to be working on technology projects with this sort of same approach um and that's that's how i ended up there um and then continued to uh train in social theory um with a particular focus on digital anthropology um doing my own field work as well um not just the um you know sort of projects that uh, you know perhaps i had been asked to do by the organisation i was working for but actually seeking to go and build my own you know sort of fieldwork and and learn from that experience as well uh and that's ultimately sort of how i ended up where i am today good
0: yeah well so thanks for sharing that as you sort of joked about right it's it's not a linear a to b path as we often Times make it out to be, so I appreciate you sort of sharing the journey, and, and certainly going through sort of the museum space and well, music, and then museum. Right, it's it is very um, it's very interesting to hear, right? And it, and you can see why you learned a lot along the way. But it also I think helps everybody listening realize that many of us sort of take you know a very strange journey into this field. And so, for any of those who are doing that right now, they're not alone, which is always helpful to hear. Um, I'd be curious to know so between the museum space and then like say as you were just describing your own ethnographic work which was a little bit more digital you know those are two interesting experiences to have sort of that like more sort of material or kind of physical background and then you know this digital piece is is really interesting and so how much of what you did at the museum you know may factor into what you're doing today is there like you know some real lessons learned there that you've brought with you?
1: Absolutely yeah and I, I not- I think this is one of the things that, um, you know, is is really great about user research more broadly is that obviously you, you can work in a museum field, but equally you could be working in um, service design, which is another area that I've worked in over the years as well. Um, and you can also work in UX research. And there's a certain amount of overlap between those areas. Uh, in the sense of you know a, a lot of not all of them but a lot of the research methods you use are the same um, and they're you know a, a lot of the approaches that you use uh, can also be applied so I feel like I you know my sort of earlier experience in the museum field uh, it was almost learning how to adapt the skills that I sort of had picked up from that and certainly in the work that I did there, it was a lot of it was in person, which obviously, you know, sort of when you particularly think of the last year, but perhaps even a little bit before that, we're now doing more and more remote work. And it's a tr- trying to adjust, I think, to how you engage somebody, uh, you know, when you're working remotely with them and that type of thing. And some of the approaches are the same and some of them you sort of need to practice to, to adapt them. Um I think certainly in the very early stages, I had a lot of learning to do myself in terms of trying to understand, you know, sort of lots of different things um, around how user research fits into an organization. uh, And um, when you're sort of working with participatory design as well, how that fits uh, into not just the organization, but the sector um, as well. Uh, so, for example, the museums field uh, here in the, the UK—you um, know depending on the museum will either fit into the public sector, where it's funded, you know, sort of through government funds, or it will fit into the charitable sector, where it's funded by charitable activities and things like that. And that's a very different situation to working, f- you know, sort of for a business or, or the private sector. So, um, learning how user research and/or participatory design works in in one sector compared to another is also a really useful learning curve and there's a lot of lessons that they can all take from each other and that you can take even if you've got quite a uh you know sort of a diverse range of experience if you've done you know different things you you can apply those in different sectors it's more just understanding how to translate it um so yeah uh it it was really useful for me
0: Yeah. Great. Yeah. So I want to come back to two things. One, the remote research, but also maybe participatory design, but to just stay on like this sort of training component for a minute. So, you know, you're essentially talking about more or less, you know, in my words, not yours, but like building like the toolkit, the research toolkit, Mm -hmm. which then we, you know, pull things out of when it's the right fit. And so, as you said, you took a number of courses, um, some short, some longer. So, could you maybe elaborate on some of those and like what was particularly useful because a lot of people who are trying to break into the field, they are looking to augment maybe their academic experience with some other short courses. Um, and so you know there's courses, you know, there's certificates, there's courses you could take from epic right? there's there's all kinds of stuff out there. And so maybe you know would you share what you found was particularly useful and and maybe the you know has helped you in that journey to make you know to make that transition?
1: Yeah, so I think as I was going through the experiences um, myself, and as I was getting to know other people who worked in UX, I would kind of get a sense of, um, you know, some sort of types of skills or knowledge that they they had or were using that I felt like I could develop more myself. Um, so... I was, you know, staying quite open, I think, to what types of courses I might do, whether it was a more academic course like the University of Amsterdam one was or whether it was um, something that was um, perhaps more um, focused on, you know, applied techniques and approaches. So uh, I, I think that sort of openness to to learning as much as you possibly can from lots of different sources is, is, is a good um, opportunity. Uh, there were you know, sort of some courses that were more, I suppose, academic, but aimed at the general public. So, uh, for example, um, uh, UCL, uh, based in London, the university, they have uh, quite a well-known digital anthropology department. And they, for example, have run uh, free courses on, uh, you know, sort of how people relate to social media around the world. For example, they've done global studies on how people interact with social media. Um, which, you know, was one of the ones that I took. And you might not sort of initially have kind of gone, oh, okay, well, you know, how does that fit into my day to day work with UX? But once I'd taken it, I sort of started seeing links to it in surprising ways um, in in my work um, and and things like that. So those types of courses are really good. Um, There's obviously a lot of uh, courses available through places like Epic, as you say, that are sort of more dedicated to uh you know applied work um so uh that you know those have been incredibly useful to to me as well and uh i'm trying to think i don't think i've taken too many uh you know sort of around uh, ux design and that type of thing but i know that some people have some researchers have and they've found that useful so i think it really depends on what type of thing you're interested in And if you don't know what you're interested in, try lots of different things. There's so many courses that are available out there that are uh, either you can either take them free or you can take them, you know, sort of for a low cost. So working out what you think will be most useful to you. Um, But I found a bit of a mixture between applied and academic courses Mm -hmm. was was helpful.
0: And how about, you know, seeing as you're working in technology, I know you said when you study music you got a little bit of that tech piece there but did you do anything else to understand you know the, the landscape of technology or business more broadly speaking you know just like to you know sort of upskill on things like agile or just you know understand any of those kind of mindsets that we use within this space
1: yeah that's a good point actually um so i did i did find a short course which was all about agile approaches to um you know sort of to ux and i i felt like that was a really good starting point to be able to understand that aspect of it because obviously some you know sort of organizations do work you know agilely and others don't (laughs) so it's useful to uh to understand um i um i'm trying to think what other types of uh things oh yes that was it so as well as you know kind of looking to see Uh, you know about you know those types of courses I was also looking to see what people were talking about in the sector so what UX professionals were discussing so um, places like Twitter for example was one of the earliest places where I uh, almost started listening initially I was sort of trying to pay attention to what conversations were happening in the UX space and where people were talking about sort of agile methods that was what triggered me to go oh okay I need to maybe have a look into this and understand a little bit more of this Um, so it was a really good place for me to actually try and work out, okay, what types of skills and or knowledge do I have already that perhaps I just use a different name for them and what types of skills or knowledge, you know, could I develop more that would make me sort of a stronger candidate for a UX job or, um, you know, help me progress and advance, you know, what I'm doing. So I feel like that's maybe another good way to start getting a sense of. What's important and what's being discussed in the industry, uh, and also to it's, it's a start into networking as well. Because once you're listening into those conversations, you can then start joining in when you're feeling a little bit more confident, and uh, you know have conversations with people. So, yeah, I feel you know uh, social media and there's a lot of Slack groups available as well um, that people can you know sort of join and and get a, get a feel for the industry even before they they join it. Um, I'm saying the UX industry very broadly. As you said, you know, that might be for what UX lo- looks like in business. And certainly when I'd spent a lot more time in the public sector and the charitable sector, I'd picked up a lot of uh, you know, what it was like for some people working in UX in business through those types of things, through those conversations that were happening paying attention to conferences that were happening like Epic, for example, people would be talking about what it was like doing ethnography in business. So even though at the time I wasn't working in business myself, I was able to pick up some of the things that people were talking about and that that perhaps challenges that they'd had that I could learn from so that when I did move into the private sector, I I had a bit of a feel for what I was moving into. Mm
0: -hmm. And so that all brings up something that you know we frequently discuss which is networking broadly speaking but also like some people might refer to it as informational interviews so you know aside from like lurking on Twitter initially and and maybe eventually reaching out on social media were you were you doing anything to network with people in the space uh, maybe you yeah, know maybe the conferences is it but like intentionally sort of trying to to build a network which you then maybe you know maybe used to sort of get your first role or did you did you do anything um like you know um a little bit more structured in that way
1: i did yeah absolutely and um as i say i sort of started with almost the observation slash listening exercise and then moved on to you know perhaps responding to people specifically um uh, you know, more publicly. And then after a little while, I was like, okay, well, I feel like I need to get more detail here. Um, I need to get more information. You know, I, I felt like I needed to almost sort of uh, check check in with, with someone else and say, hey, you know, you you're where I would like to be. I'm doing these things. Am I kind of on the right lines? Because I felt like I didn't know anybody personally that I could ask at that point um you know and so I wanted to almost get some advice um and and I you know was very grateful uh to to those folks that I reached out to speak to because they were very you know generous with their time in kind of uh you know describing the types of things that had helped them and you know providing encouragement and and those types of things so that I think um provided me with a, almost like a little push to kind of move a little bit further along. So uh, indirectly, I would say it probably did contribute to me being able to get my first, you know, sort of role in that because they they were helping to direct me and encourage me along the path a little bit more. So uh, it's definitely worthwhile doing. Uh, I've been in the really nice position where, you know, sort of people that are trying to get into UX have, have come to me and asked, me for advice and it's it's really nice to kind of be able to pay that forward because you remember how much people helped helped you when you were in that scenario and so yeah it's definitely it's definitely a worthwhile thing to do.
0: Great. And so you know moving on kind of in the timeline getting a little closer to to what you're doing today I'd like to maybe just touch on cyborg anthropology. So you know there are I I feel like I say this all the time on these podcasts but there're like in anthropology there are various definitions of cyborg anthropology and yeah you know, probably some debates about what that really means um but you're also the first person to sort of identify with with you know overtly studying that and so would you mind just you know telling everybody from your perspective what cyborg anthropology is and maybe what interested you
1: Sure so I I think for me it's almost like part of the whole sort of digital anthropology sphere. So um, it, it, it was very interesting to me to start to learn about all these different theories uh, of how we interact with technology. And as you, you know, sort of hinted at there, there's different perspectives on, you know, ha- how we how, how we're interacting with technology you know are we sort of merging with technology um you know are, are we you know sort of um in some weird dynamic with technology is it a very natural thing um so there's a lot of uh i guess conversations and discussions ar- ar- around that um for, for me i think it's very useful to learn about these types of um you know sort of conversations and theories because it provides a bit of an interesting context then if you're doing work around, um, for example, say smartphones, there's been a lot of, um, you know, focus on how, how people uh, relate to smartphones and, you know, all those sort of th- things where, uh, you know, smartphones are kind of uh, arguably potentially like an extension of some of our uh functions. Um, So providing an extension of sort of our memory or, um, you know, an extension of how we communicate, things like that. So there's lots of interesting stuff. If anybody, you know, sort of becomes interested in digital anthropology or cyborg anthropology and wants to sort of delve into those uh, a little bit, um, I've found it, you know, really fascinating um, to to learn about. And the really nice thing is because uh, technology is ever evolving. There's so many um, you know evolving thoughts and theories around that as well so uh, what was maybe uh, really relevant ten years ago perhaps may or may not be relevant today it might be uh, you know things might have moved on considerably or uh, whether that's the technology or whether it's sort of the the thinking behind it so uh, yeah I I think it's definitely um, an area that's uh, particularly useful to UX for sure
0: good. And so, so now you're working in UX, you, you know, you get to cover a range of research. Would you mind, um, you know, maybe just telling us a little bit about your role and kind of, you know, a little bit about maybe the the type of research you're doing, the products you're focusing on, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig into those a bit.
1: Uh, sure, no problem. Um, so. I'm trying to think where to start It's one of those. Um, I'm very lucky in that my, my role is, is very varied. Um, so from day to day, I could be working on looking at different types of devices, or I could be looking at um, different types of platforms, or, um, you know, sort of uh, a, a, a real range of, of different things um, uh, as well, because the the brand that I work for is a global brand it could be um you know sort of looking at uh you know a piece of technology or an app or a website that is uh focused on a UK audience or it could be something you know for pretty much (laughs) any international audience you can think of so on a day-to-day basis my work you know is really varied you know I can be working on one project and the next project may come in it'd be something completely different and that really appeals to me because well you're never bored for a start there's always something different that that comes in um but um it's I, I think over time I've kind of developed my own um you know research interests and research specialisms which um you know sort of are much more on the artificial intelligence side so i particularly enjoy working on projects that are related to ai or emerging technologies um and um but there I, there is a lot of variation in that so uh yeah a real real range i hope that makes some sense but mm-hmm. it it can be so varied <laughs>
0: Yeah, sure. No, you know, I think in many ways what it comes down to for people listening is like, you know, in the consulting model, we're we're oftentimes project to project, right? We're kind of focused on many things, Uh, even some, you know, versus like maybe a product company, which is building one particular product and you're solely on that product. And, of course, there's you know, there's some space in the middle. even my company, we do consulting, plus we build our own products, so we we have a mix. But you know if you look at it as that kind of continuum, you know I think it's worth thinking through for anybody who wants to get in the field because you know do you want a varied experience where you get to learn something new? I and mean, of course, you're still oftentimes applying you know using the same methods. you know you you have your same toolkit that sort of you know you pull something out when it's when it's a fit but you get to at least like learn new subject matter oftentimes or, or see it applied in different ways. Versus, you know, if you go to a product company and you're only on one, you know, you might become sort of an expert in that one particular product, but it's maybe a little less varied. And and those roles, you know, they both have pros and cons, but they're not for everybody, right? Or each one's not for everybody. Um, I, like you, like the more varied approach. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting to be able you know, to work on safety equipment one day and then, you know, in the arts the next day and yeah. You know, and learn from both of those really.
1: Yeah. It it keeps life interesting, uh, and and you know, as as you say, some some people prefer, you know, one one particular uh product or one particular area that they're they're working on, and other people prefer a bit of a variation. But I suppose the good thing about UX is as you just pointed out, there's those types of roles in the field. So you you can get a bit of a feel for which, which one you think you might prefer.
0: Yeah. Now also interesting, you know, so you're saying global company? You have you know UK audience, but also beyond. And so you know that's one of those things that's also good to think through when 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 considering a job or where you want to apply, right? Because um, obviously that changes some of the dynamics. You know if it's if it's local you know, post-COVID, at least, it will be easier to get back to sort of in-context research. And if it's global, depending on the company, you may or may not be in context all the time, and you might be doing more sort of digital ethnography or netnography. And so, you know, even uh, size of company also impacts the way we do research. So it's worth keeping in mind. In, so in your case, since you have both audiences p- prior to COVID, were you doing in-context work in the UK?
1: Yes. Yeah, um and I suppose that uh relates very well to you know what I was saying earlier about sort of having that background in kind of public engagement community engagement is you know I I'm, I've got a long you know sort of history now of in person work with with people so you know uh, that that's always enjoyable um it uh, obviously um you know since covid there's been a lot more remote research um in terms of of that, but uh, I think there's a lot of ways you can kind of transfer things that you've learned in person to how you work remotely with people because you, you're st- it's still about connecting with people, it's still about engaging them, it's still about building rapport with them, and you know, all of those types of things. So, uh, you know, it, it, it is possible to adapt some of the things, not all of them, but it's, it's possible to adapt a lot of the, the approaches. Um, there i think it's about just kind of understanding the differences between them in some ways because um you know there's there's some things that obviously you can get from in person research that you can't necessarily from remote but also vice versa there's there's been some things that people have shared with me through uh you know digital ethnography through mobile ethnography that they i don't feel they would have perhaps been as frank with me had i been there in person so there's, there's pros and cons to, to each method. And I I think, um, you know, the more that you sort of can understand both, uh, the, the better positioned you are to, to know what's possible in terms of your resources or in terms of your time or, um, you know, in terms of the research question, even uh, if you're, you're, you're able to sort of, um, you know, base your choices off that as well. Sure.
0: Yeah. You know, Matt in um, Previous episode, he said the same exact thing about how, you know, he's, he's, I think the word he used was like slip. More people are sort of slipping in the digital ethnography space because he's not there, like you said, right? So they're more kind of willing to share. Um, I also, thinking about something that Larry McGrath had said in, on an earlier episode where I didn't even think to do this, but he has people sort of like almost like describe their space a bit. So rather than just, vi- you know, uh, virtually observing their space, which Obviously, we all do right makes sense, but he goes kind of a step further and has them you know describe it a bit and and to learn a little bit more about the context, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but so so today you as you mentioned, you know you're interested in um you know more emerging technologies, uh, AI. and so maybe to start, what got you you know why does that interest you?
1: That's a good question. Why does it interest me? Um, I think I think initially it was something that was less familiar to me. As in, smartphones is something that obviously has been around for some time, and we're all quite, you know, well versed to them being in our lives. Um, so to me, you know, it's interesting. But it was something that perhaps I, you know, uh, had a lot of time to digest both as a you know on a personal basis and as a researcher and some of the more sort of emerging technologies um, and sort of newer technologies they raise different questions i think so uh, for example one of my um my own independent uh, research projects has been around smart speakers and privacy and convenience and for me the fact that You had this permanent piece of technology in your home and it wasn't just, uh, you know, having an impact on the person that brought it in, but it was also being interacted with by other members of the family or, or whoever else was living in that space. And, you know, their data was also kind of a part of this whole picture as well. So that to me was really interesting because before when I was working with smartphones, I was thinking, well, okay. You know, maybe some people share a smartphone, but a lot of the time, um, you know, sort of the participants that I've worked with, it's 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 been maybe them and sort of one or two other people. It's not sort of being used uh, on a very, very, very regular basis by lots of different people. It's kind of maybe a very small number of people. Um, whereas when I first, you know, sort of started thinking about smart speakers and, uh, you know, other types of smart home technology, I immediately was like, "Okay, this raises some interesting questions that I'm really curious about." So I think for perhaps for me, the it, it's the curiosity of it, of it, the the novelty, the newness of it. Um, you know, wanting to understand, you know, sort of how they're impacting each other. How how are people interacting with that technology? But also, is it having an impact on the people there? So. Um, some of the participants I- in my study had had kind of uh, found ways to um, a- adapt how they were living because this smart speaker is in the home. So they would sort of go and have conversations in different rooms because they were worried it would overhear them or whatever. So which is, you know, f- fair, fair enough, you know, that that was their, you know, sort of uh, concern. So I, I suppose that's the thing that fascinates me is, is what, what impact is that having? What you know, what what um what benefits do people get from that technology, and and what things you know maybe have not been considered so much? What maybe are the risks or the concerns?
0: Yeah, Curiosity, very, I would
1: say, is the answer.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you, and actually, you know, it's interesting <clears throat> because uh, we're doing something very similar. So, yeah, you know, that was your personal research, and in the so i have I've been doing work work in the genetic space, and that does grow out of client work and you know thesis, but I've continued to do it beyond those relationships. And so I want to dig into that for a second because I think it's an interesting way, like in your case, like to have a portfolio piece to you know, I know you spoke on it at um, uh, the now the responsible tech conference, but the the previous version, previous name of that. Um, I what was in Anthropology, technology. I think right. That's right. Um, and so, you know, I, having these personal sort of projects is um, good for a portfolio, but it may also raise the question of like, you know, you don't have like a, um, you know, you don't have an affiliation. Is is there any ethical concerns there? Right. There, there's some of that that we can dig into, but I also just want to point out that it's very interesting because you're, I mean, you're you're doing it with the smart speaker. I was doing it genetics, but both. Implicate the other people around you, right? Because if I take a genetic test, it essentially implicates all of my family, especially if I then make that data public, which a lot of people do, uh, on you know uh, on websites that are you know more or less you could almost describe as sort of like open sourcing your, your 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 genome. But so there's there's a very similar aspect to what we're doing, and then you know building on that, there's the sort of the data and ultimately the data and privacy piece, right? And and so that, that's really interesting, um, and maybe you know, maybe offline we can talk about that more. And maybe there's an opportunity there. But um, in terms of you doing sort of your own research, so I appreciate you know being in a similar position that it, it gives you an ability to develop skills, to develop a portfolio piece. Um, and I think it's worth anybody doing if they have an interest in a topic, right? Um, but to my earlier point, we need to go about it the right way. Of course, we still need to protect privacy, um, and so did you do anything particularly in that space to to sort of, you know, ensure, I mean, you don't have an IRB, right, but to sort of ensure that people are being protected in a similar way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, at the time I was, um, you know, sort of uh, going through a process of um, uh, professional development in terms of reviewing how how I approach things, um, trying sort of uh, new methods, so getting more familiar with uh, like mobile ethnography for example which was um, what I I had used as my main method for the study um, and actually to, you know going through that process of uh, making sure that I had all of the relevant things in place um, to be able to to do everything uh, you know to a university standard um, effectively um, so I I've got uh, contacts as well um, that work in academic research who I was able to sort of uh, I guess bounce ideas off and sort of say look you know this is this is the process that I'm using Um, and for my professional development I you know I sort of want to have some conversations with you around you know um, is there anything else that I need to consider Um, and and getting a sense of for, for my own development you know how are my processes? Is there something that I need to review or improve on? Um, as you say, from the sort of, uh, you know, business side, we have to be very familiar with uh, data protection and, uh, you know, sort of how we process participant data as well. So I'd had to go through a lot of thinking around, you know, how am I going to store the participant data? How am I going to, um, you know, sort of uh, manage that? How am I going to deal with all this sort of, uh, you know, consent because that's an important part of it as well, is obviously being able to communicate to the participant what I am aiming to do with the data that I'm collecting from that study uh, and, you know, sort of what the outcomes will be, uh, because they have to obviously know that to consent to to being part of the, the study as well. So, yes, it was a really useful one for me because I had to almost uh, look at my my own processes with fresh eyes and, and, you know, sort of make sure that I was doing all of the appropriate things, um, check in with, with other people to sort of say, okay, this is, this is the process that I've, I'm, you know, planning. Um, can you give me some feedback? Is there anything you'd change or do differently? Um, and it was a really useful thing, you know, for me to do and made it a bit more of a portfolio piece, as you mentioned, because I'd sort of, Uh, it's good evidence of my professional development so it was hard work but I definitely like you I would recommend it to to anyone that's thinking of of doing something similar Um, it's been very worthwhile um, both in terms of my development but also as as a portfolio piece as as evidence um, of uh, the work that I've done.
0: And did it you know I don't <clears throat> not sure the exact timeline here so did it help contribute to you getting any of your UX jobs like in in the technology space or you know whether that's you know the first one or now you know your current one you know did it play a role in any of that or open any doors by you know giving the talk that you gave or
1: uh I'm trying to remember that I think this was later on in the timeline but I had done something similar earlier on in my career it's this sounds a little bit uh interesting in terms of the timeline but um, way before that uh, probably around the time of my museum job um, initially i had obviously had this history of working in public engagement, community engagement and you know so I needed to I guess get some experience in terms of using user research methods and everything else so I had almost uh, you know sort of looked for opportunities to do that within the job that I had at the time um and they were sort of like smaller uh studies i guess you could say um where i could sort of show the organization that i was working for okay here's the type of thing we could do and here here are the sort of benefits of that and for myself then i was actually able to almost you know sort of build that into my job role uh and get that experience so that wasn't necessarily a personal project because I was doing it on behalf of the organization, but I almost had to, you know, sort of uh, set up the project and think it through and sort of show it to them and say, okay, wh- how would it be if we if we did this? And I could use that then as evidence to not only that organization to say, okay, well, now we've done that, we can do more of these for different uh, things. But also I could use that as a a portfolio piece in its own right, because I could say, well, here's here's something that I planned and set up. And I didn't have the word UX in my title, I didn't have the word researcher in my title, but I was doing user research. And it was almost kind of looking for that opportunity from where I was at that time, the role that I was in. Um, and I, I think uh, Laurel, who was on a previous podcast, she talked about having a similar experience. So um, yeah, I feel like I, I did a version of that earlier on in my career which did help me progress
0: yeah the you know the thing that strikes me there is you know they they sort of demonstrate entrepreneurship or like intrapreneurship if you will right and um just the demonstrate to others the ability to sort of plan to start to you know follow through right to manage your own project which which is useful for anybody to see in business that you know you as a potential employee can do that and um you know, of course, even our academic projects, like if we have an applied project that can demonstrate those similar qualities, but you know, doing these sort of extracurricular ones can also be very beneficial. And um, it's also a good way, it goes, it even touches, like your, your example there touches on uh, an article I wrote many, many years ago for UserZoom about kind of like how to almost start like a, a UX practice to a degree. And you know, so for anybody who's like maybe in a role where they want to do this work but they don't quite have the opportunity, if you can sort of just find your own project within the organization and demonstrate the value, it oftentimes can blossom into something else. Right? Which absolutely. Which is, um, is, is a good way to ultimately find the role that you want, you know, and and that could even be in an academic department, like do something for the school if you're still you know in that space, right? Like you know, improve the registration process, whatever it may be, you know, yeah, there's a- projects absolutely. to be found.
1: that's it yeah regardless of you know um wherever you might be and it doesn't necessarily have to be a digital project as you mentioned it you know it may may maybe um you know sort of something that is more around a service or around a physical space you're still using user research methods that can be translated into a ux career and it's still evidence for your portfolio so yeah definitely have a look at you know what potential opportunities there there may be because you might you might be surprised by you know the the opportunities that that are there.
0: Yeah, there's always room for improvement somewhere, for sure. <laughs> so, so to now to touch maybe on the AI piece. So you know, obviously, like smart speakers, there's an AI component in that you know machine learning is playing a role in recommendations, um, but the you know the applications are far and wide. So. Can you talk a little bit about you know your interest you know particularly in AI and maybe we can get into some of the, the data and privacy concerns that exist there?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think that all sort of came about for me off the back of the smart speakers project that, that I'd done and then I started sort of um, you know wanting to kind of understand more. Um, I'd done a lot of reading prior to that around sort of uh, the, the current discussions that were taking place in the AI. Uh, you know, sort of industry and getting up to speed on sort of the literature that was there. Um, But it was sort of after I'd done the Smart Speakers project, I was immediately like, okay, well, you know, what else is there? What kind of um, other real world, uh, you know, sort of things are happening here in terms of the impact on people and the impact of people on on AI? Um, You know, how are these things developing from here? Because... Once I'd sort of learned a little little bit about it, it was almost uh, a sense of well, th- this is still developing, you know, and it, there's a very real um, opportunity here for people with uh, anthropology, you know, training uh, to to really ha- have a positive impact in in that uh, industry in that area. So, uh, you know, it was it was of real interest to me um, because not only was it sort of you know, a rel- relatively new, <laughs> um, you know, sort of field, but the fact that it is growing so fast at the moment, it's, you know, AI is touching every corner of our lives, whether we are consciously aware of that or not, you know, it's, it's making, um, you know, sort of recommendations in terms of, uh, you know, music recommendations, perhaps if you use a streaming system, or, you It may be recommending what you watch if you're on Netflix or if you are uh, using social media. It may be deciding what things you see or don't see in terms of updates from friends or job adverts, things like that. So whether we're consciously aware of it, it is touching already lots of different aspects of our lives. And that was one of the things that to me made it feel very urgent you know, that it needed uh, people with social science backgrounds involved. Um, And the conference that you mentioned earlier, the Responsibility uh, Tech Summit that is coming up in May, that is sort of one of those key areas that's trying to bring those conversations together of, you know, the conversations from the tech industry and from computer science And the social science aspect, bringing anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists into the mix and having everybody talk about it together and go, okay, well, what what can we do to improve uh, the situation and make sure that we are maximizing the benefits of AI uh, and other emerging tech? I'm saying AI because that's my main interest. Um, And and how can we minimize the risks to to people um, for this?
0: And so in in the AI space, you know, is there any particular area that you're most interested in, like such as the relationship to data and privacy or algorithmic bias, or, you know, is there any one area that you're, that you want to focus on?
1: It's really tough because there's so many interesting areas. So it's really, really hard to sort of pin it down a lot of the time. Um, But I am, uh, you know, I am especially interested in the data and, uh, you know, privacy side of it because uh, that was a, a core part of my smart speakers study and it's become part of a lot of conversations that I've I've been in and that is one of the key areas that I think is is one of you know sort of the most urgent conversations we need to have um and obviously in recent years there's been a very big um shift in the tech industry and i suppose the public view of the tech industry as well in terms of asking a lot more questions about data and privacy and what's happening to it so I feel like naturally I'm most drawn to that part, but there are so many different aspects. As you mentioned, like algorithmic bias is is really interesting um, and something that needs, you know, again, urgently addressing in a lot of different applications of AI. Um, and I'm trying to think of all the different other aspects um, of it, you know, um, a- accountability, so who's responsible for, the decisions that some of these algorithms are making if it's a financial algorithm that's deciding <coughs> excuse me if somebody gets credit or not um you know who who is responsible f- for that you know um those types of things so there is a lot of a lot of different interesting aspects but i think probably yeah data and privacy is is the main one that i'm drawn to
0: Got it. you know just building on the accountability comment i'm 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 not studying this, but I have an interest in following what's happening in the music space with AI, you know, which I imagine you might be interested in as well, given your background. But there's, there's definitely a conversation to be had about derivative works, right? So if AI tools, you know, if machine learning based music creation tools are being trained on existing data, say like, you know, existing melodies, and then they're now being used to generate melodies on the fly you know is that a derivative work or not right what that's it's a very gray area and you know melodies might be relatively you know a single melody might seem relatively simplistic but of course there's also ai that's now writing full songs more or less right and they're not wonderful yet but i can envision a world where they get good enough to write pop songs based on you know the current taste Right. Oh, and that then sort of, you know, if it's based on the current taste of the training data, you know, that's, that's ultimately tied to the training data of what's popular right now. What does that also imply about like the future state of music, right? Is it just sort of like a, a reflection of what was already popular and sort of amplifying that in a way that, you know, removes like all of the, the beauty of the variety of music. And, um, so th- there's a lot of interesting things happening in there. Um, which maybe again is for another time for us given our music <laughs> interests, but on, on the data and privacy piece, so you know, you said it's, you know, an urgent issue that needs to be addressed. And I agree. Now um in a recent Society for applied anthropology uh panel that I had hosted, there were varying views on on data. And um some thought Yu Grunberg thought that it's you know, that in, in her work, she sees that a lot of data sets are kind of messy. Uh, and I think there's, you know, there's an argument to be made there that, you know, there is, but um, I could, you know, maybe see that in terms of when you're like sort of aggregators of data that you're pulling together data from different data sets. I could certainly see how that's very messy. But I know from working in tech, when you look at like analytics platforms, the data they collect directly from a mobile device is not messy at all. Right. It's very clear cut that this is this user, this is their device, you know, they've used it these times and these locations. It's it is very, very clean and very, very telling about a user. And so, you know, I think there's the argument of messiness or not, there's likely uh sides in which it is and it's not Messy, right? And I'm particularly maybe interested in more of the area where it's it's very clear cut and it's like genetics. I mean, that is like big data to its core. It's literally like everything about you. If you get a whole genome scan, you know, it's that is you in in terms of a genetic profile, and it's a it's you know massive amount of data. And there's a lot that it has a lot of implications. And so does a lot of the data that's being collected, you know, via say mobile devices uh, or even cross-device. And so what is so I agree with you. It's an urgent issue um but what you know what is your main concern there is it the fact that the data is being collected is it the fact that like you know the 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 owner doesn't really at least today doesn't have many options of whether they give that up or not or the fact that they don't get monetized you know that they're not being compensated for it you know is it is there any like particular area that you're focused on
1: i think there's probably yeah as you say there's a lot of different issues swirling in that uh you know kind of pool isn't there at the moment i think the thing for me is probably um well there's a a couple of things one being yeah how much people understand about you know what is happening with their data and what it's being used for how much data is being collected um what type of data is being collected because a lot of the participants that, that i've worked with generally speaking um you know, tend to think of it as being sort of very vague data. You know, it's it's very vague information that's difficult to sort of tie back to, to them. Um, and as you've said, you know, there are some scarily precise, you know, sort of bits of data being collected about people, um, you know, from a tech perspective. And I think, it's almost that awareness of what happens, you know, with that data. Is it being all sort of compiled together? If it is being compiled together and brought together in like sort of a profile, how is it being used? Um, So we were talking about sort of um, algorithmic bias as well, that kind of also plays a part in the sense of, Uh, You know, there was um, some work that had been done previously um, by Sandra Vakter and her colleagues at the Oxford Internet Institute, where they'd sort of found that certain jobs were being advertised to uh, sort of more to um, people with uh, profiles that selected male um, in their social media profiles more than, uh, you know, people that had other gender identities and that type of thing. So I think you know, you wouldn't know necessarily, you wouldn't be aware that that you had uh, not been shown those pieces of information. So I, I think it's, there's a lot of different aspects to it. It's what's happening with the data, you know, what's being collected, but then what happens to it once it's being collected, you know, sort of how how is it being sort of used and what impact is that having on you? You know, is, is there something that is not being shown to you or not being you're not being sort of informed about what's happening um you know and and is it affecting your experience of something so there's so many different aspects but i think yeah it's almost that flow of data and where it goes and and the knowledge of the person who is ultimately the, the source of that data that is is the thing that's most in in my mind a lot of the time
0: yeah you know i am um, just building on the example you gave I just I'm reading right now a whole bunch of papers on algorithmic bias for a project I'm working on, and I, to be frank, I don't remember any author names right now because I'm just you know going through so many at once. But um, I was reading in a in a paper the other day a, a very similar example, and maybe it's in fact the same example in which um, job who was considered an ideal candidate was ultimately tied to gender because you know the the training data was historically biased because it related to sort of gender disparities within STEM fields. And so, you know, because of STEM fields being historically dominated, you know, by males today, like, you know, the recommendations are for those fields are being, right, slanted towards uh, towards males, at least in this example. And maybe it was a hypothetical example. I, I don't recall at the moment, but anyway, even if it wasn't a hypothetical example, or even if it was, you can see how, you know, that could really play out in real world, such as with police systems and sort of over policing now and historically sort of like, you know, areas that were policed because of racist policies. Um so yeah, I'm with you. And also, you know, to, to what you're saying, um, again, in, in my genetics work, I'm interested in particular kind of like the informed consent process, if you will, right? I know which sounds like very academic, but ultimately the contracts, the terms of service that we opt into when using these. These systems, because quite frankly, we know that people do not—the vast majority of people do not read those at all, right? And um, like you know, dark patterns are oftentimes used to make it frictionless to opt into these, and and so then you're you know you're oftentimes granting data. You know, like in the genetic case, um, oftentimes your 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 continued use of these systems. there's language in the contract in which your continued use of their systems gives them the ability to more or less sort of change the contract at will and use the data in, in ways unintended at the time of like maybe when you signed up. And so, you know, that's that's a scary position to be in. And and so to your point, the the, the knowledge that people have when choosing to opt in and then how is that data you know collected and processed after is, is it's a very interesting space and one that we can contribute to. Um, and so I guess moving forward, you know, this is a really ripe area for us to be involved in uh, others we we need to encourage others to get involved in that of course the work you're doing is important but we need more of you right so if you were going to recommend to anybody of maybe like how they could kind of get into similar work is there anything that you know we haven't touched on that maybe you would suggest it's
1: a good question um i think always the um, i think always the starting point whether it's ux and or ai it, it would be sort of trying to make contact with the communities and the conversations that are happening which we sort of touched on earlier from the the ux side um i think again because ai is such a um a relatively uh, new sounds wrong but it's a growing field i should probably say it's not new it's been around for a while but it the the, it's, there's a renewed interest in it at the moment, and it's 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 a growing field. So there are a lot of um, courses, again, that are available, uh, a lot of them for free, that um, are being made available uh, from some universities and some uh, companies. So they're actually making some available where you can understand the technical aspects of it. Or, you know, in some cases, they're actually doing more of the... Um, uh, sort of corporate responsibility and the ethical side of it which is probably more the area that i'm most interested in um and the sort of social implications of it the the sort of uh you know that that type of uh, aspect of ai so there's definitely a lot of those types of things that people can tap into um and again um a lot of conversations that are happening Even if you can't get a, you know, sort of a conference ticket um, for, you know, sort of certain conferences that are happening in this space, um, even being able to find out what the hashtags are for those conversations, because certainly when I was first getting started, I was like, okay, I'm not sure I can afford to go to that conference, but I'd love to. Uh, But I do want to hear what's being said. So um, sometimes, you know, if you can find out the hashtag for that conference, you know, you can actually then... Look on Twitter or um, LinkedIn and, and find out what people are saying about it. People are generally pretty good. I've found on Twitter live tweeting certain things. There's always like a few people that are really active. So even if you don't know what the hashtag is, try searching for some keywords. And once you know that there's a conference happening that's relevant to these types of things... If, if you're not able to be there yourself, um, look look up the hashtags and follow the conversations that way. Um, and then at least you're kind of, you're learning and you're able to get some, some information there um, initially. Um, Slack groups may also be another way that you can kind of, sometimes people will share videos or um, papers after the fact that you can kind of go and look up.
0: Good. You know, one thing um, also that we didn't, I wanted to come back to, but could be, I think, valuable for people who want to maybe get into this work is the concept of like participatory design. Because, uh, particularly, like, say, you know, if anybody who's interested in being a researcher within the AI space, I mean, this applies more broadly for sure, but certainly within the AI space, you're absolutely going to be part of a cohort, you know, of a cross disciplinary team working together. Um, and that really is frequently the case in business anyway, but it's, you know, this is a field where. You know, it's it's a very abstract field. We absolutely need to be partnering with engineering and data science. And so, you know, learning how to work together to co-create something is really important. And so you did touch on, on that earlier. And is that anything that you particularly did training in, you know, or, or just sort of self-study?
1: I, I think I, I would say I spent quite a lot of time trying to understand what, you know, sort of uh, those different roles do. Um, and whether that was through sort of my, um, you know, online networking and sort of, you know, tr- as I say, sort of observing and listening to the conversations that were happening, but also actively trying to read up on, you know, sort of a um, I'll try to think of the best way to describe it, almost like an overview of, well, what what does a, you know, product manager do? Or what does, you know, a data scientist do in you know, sort of a business role, trying to get a bit of a sense of what what their priorities might be um, before I kind of got to that point where I was in that role already. Um, And at that point, you know, then you can start to, uh, you know, turn your sort of uh, engagement skills and communication skills to actually sort of working with that individual and understanding what's important to them. But before you get to that point, you can absolutely find out more by, proactively looking things up and trying to understand you know uh what what happens in those roles um one of the things that i uh, didn't mention earlier which i think might be very relevant is a lot of people that i speak to that are kind of wanting to get into ux or ai um don't always necessarily think about their skills and their knowledge that they have already as transferable to those things you know they might say well you know i've I've you know done all this you know sort of groundwork or you know I've done all this training and you know I, I've I can do x y and z but they're not relevant to UX and I'd be like well you'd be really surprised how transferable they are so you know uh, if you did sort of field work and you had to learn another language then actually if you go and work for uh, a, an organization that is working with people that speak that that language or may do in the future so like a great global ba- brand as an example. Um, then that's very applicable and that absolutely is a skill you can use in your UX research. Um, for me, I had the audio background, so I was very used to editing audio clips, which meant that it was very easy for me to ha- learn how to edit videos, uh, which are very applicable in the UX role because sometimes you need audio and video clips to be able to get that story across and let participants you know, tell the story in their own, own words. So um, there's a lot of different skills that you know those of you listening probably have already that you haven't thought of as a UX skill uh, and absolutely are and can be applied um it may just be a case of knowing a bit more about the language of the UX industry so you can translate those skills for a company when you are um you know trying to apply for those roles you can use the terms that they would use to describe those types of skills um I think absolutely there's there's a lot to be said for transferable skills that you, you probably have already and you may not necessarily realize can be great for UX. So um, the more that you learn about the UX industry, the more you can kind of frame what you have already, uh, it, you know, in the UX light. <laughs> and the more that you'll start to realize, oh, OK, well, actually, this is an area that I could develop more. And that's where I'm going to go and look up some more information or look up a course or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic point. So definitely agree. Um, We will end it there. Uh, So just to wrap up, anything that you want to mention, any upcoming speaking engagements or anything that you're just passionate about that you want to plug? Uh,
1: Sure thing. Um, So I'm chairing a session in data privacy and responsibility at the Responsibility Summit that we've spoken about. That's uh, in May. Um, so uh, definitely um, check that out there's a link to it on my website with my research website which is um, Laura Musgrave, M-U-S-G-R-A-V-E .co.uk, Um and you'll find a link to it on, on the, the homepage there uh, and feel free to uh, get in touch with me I'm most active I think on Twitter uh, I'm at lmusgrave there um, and um, there's various links on my website that you can sort of follow to connect with me, so please feel free. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for having me, Matt.
0: Great, yeah, well, thanks for coming on. And I would just add that you also are a musician with you know, actively releasing music, so I would also encourage everybody to check out your music, and where could they maybe find that?
1: So that is on my music website, which is lauramusgravemusic, all one word, .co.uk, and you can you can check my music side out there. <laughs>
0: Great. Wonderful. It's where you got your interest in tech so it's all relevant. Absolutely. Very cool. So, Laura, thanks. Laura, Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.